scripture reading is from Zechariah chapter 7. Zechariah 7, we're going to pick up at verse 8. If you're using that blue Bible, it's page 795. Zechariah 7, beginning at verse 8. This is God telling them, reminding them what happened many years before, what they were supposed to do and what was rejected, and then the consequences of it. You've heard what I'm about to read to you from Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2 that we read a couple weeks back. It has to do with prayer. We're back at that subject again. Zechariah 7, verses 8 through 14. And the word of the Lord, the word of Yahweh, came to Zechariah saying, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that Yahweh of hosts had sent by His Spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts, Yahweh of hosts. As I called, and they would not hear, so they called, and I would not hear, says Yahweh of hosts. And I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations that they, would, that they had not known. Thus the land they left was desolate so that no one went to and fro. And the pleasant land was made desolate. And now we turn in our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. It's page 1016. For those of you who are visiting, we're doing a series of just marching our way through 1 Peter. And then we're on into 2 Peter. But we're calling it Memory, Manners, and Mandates for God's minority people. So we're just picking up right where we left off. I dealt with verses 1 through 6 last week, and now we pick up at verses 7 through 11. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. What I've read to you from the Old Testament and the New Testament is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, may your word today make us truly sophroneo and nafo. May your word truly make us sober-minded and steady. Amen. You may be seated. You will see the Sermon outline on the back of the worship guide should be lots of space for you to write notes. The questions at the bottom are really for our our care groups that will be meeting tonight, but if you aren't able to get to a care group and you enjoy roast pastor for lunch, you can look at those questions and you can discuss those.
So Moose, who's a policeman, often tells us that in a crisis, we will automatically respond the way we've trained. I got a head nod from Moose, so I know I'm one of the right targets. And because most of us have never trained for a crisis, we will respond with nothing. That's why, for example, in martial arts, we practice, that's why they practice lots of katas, those forms, those choreographed movements that come in little packets of groups, high block, punch, kick, and they do that over and over and over again besides sparring and other things. It's to practice so that way when they turn into an emergency self-defense situation, they know what in the world to do. It's why when we were in the Air Force, we practiced NBC warfare, nuclear, biological, and chemical warfare. We practiced buddy care, which is, for, is a combat first aid. When I was a cop in the Air Force station in Turkey, we practiced deploying around nuclear weapons if we ever got attacked. We practiced this so many times that when finally rounds were popped off, we immediately, without thinking, went right into mode and knew exactly where we had to be to do what we needed to do. So practice is important. And Peter addresses us here in a very grave manner, encouraging our practice. Remember, practice does not make perfect. Let me say it again. Every piano teacher in here is nodding their heads yes. Practice does not make perfect. It makes permanent. You've got to practice when it's peaceful, so that way when it's not so peaceful, you at least got your stuff together a little bit, right? So Peter is encouraging our practice now, so that when the mushroom cloud lights up the horizon in your life, whether metaphorically or factually, we have a good and God-honoring response. And so all things end, there's your first point, but as all things end, be these ways... And there is an end for all things. That's the three points right there. Let's work our way through these verses. All things end. It's that first statement in verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Now there are all kinds of interesting opinions that surface around that statement. But let me just say this emphatically. Because I believe that the apostles never recorded erroneous perspectives in Scripture that they did not mistakenly believe that Jesus would come in their time, come back in their time, then they would not record that error in Scripture. And that, my friends, is one of the ways that liberalism took hold in the church as it used the return of Jesus and would tell everybody the apostles believed that Jesus was going to, would come back in their day. And if it's got that kind of error in Scripture, then what else can you not trust? That was the reasoning. But no, I don't think that's the case. They did not say that Jesus would come back and record that error in sacred Scripture. And so, if that's the case, then, there are other thoughts that must be lying behind these words. The end of all things is at hand. And so I'm going to give you three legitimate probabilities. They're stronger than possibilities. They are probabilities about what Peter means in that statement here. And to get there, we need to try to put ourselves in Peter's sandals in his day. He's writing this letter, early 60s of the first century. In Matthew 24, Jesus foretold and laid out with gruesome detail the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem on 70 AD. Peter knows that Jesus said that that is coming, 
and he is looking forward to 70 AD because it's in front of him, and he knows that when Jerusalem is destroyed and the temple is destroyed, it will be the end of all things as he has known it. It will be the end of Judah, or Judea. It will be the end of the political state. It will be the end of much of the religious fabric of his Jewish background. It will create all kinds of ripple effects. The end of all things is at hand. And so the destruction of Jerusalem would change the social, national, religious landscape from 70 A.D. onwards. And so it's very probable he could be looking at the destruction of Jerusalem. It's also just as probable that he is looking at the Roman Empire, its social norms and its social ways and political ways of being at that present moment are shifting. There's a big change that has been going on since Julius Caesar... You know, the last Republican uh, leader of Rome, right? The end of the Republic and the beginning now of a despotic empire. And so right now, Peter and his generation are going through all the social throws, throws of that shift and change. Rome will no longer be what it used to be. The end of all things is at hand. We're moving from a Republic to a despotic empire. That is just as probable in his statement, the end of all things is at hand. But also, just as probable, is that he's looking forward to the final coming of our Lord Jesus Christ to judge the living and the dead that could happen in his life. Not would, but could. Are you picking up what I'm putting down? There's a huge difference between would and could. If you're a parent, you know what I'm talking about. It could happen in his life. That could be also just as probable that he's looking to that. Whatever the case, and you can make all of them pretty airtight, actually. Whatever the case, Peter was looking at the potential frenzy and the potential hysteria that Christians would likely exhibit in those situations. You see this panicky unsettledness, for example, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. You can write this reference down, 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 and 2. And there Paul is trying to steady an alarmed church, the Thessalonian church. And he writes these words. We ask you, brothers, do not be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Notice the language he uses. Don't be quickly unsettled in your mind and alarmed. And that's what Peter is looking at. We become too easily unsettled in our minds and alarmed when we think the mushroom cloud is about to light up the horizon. Sorry, I'm a, I'm a Cold War baby, okay? So I'm... All my career in the Air Force was about the Cold War, so it's a big thing in the back of my head. And so you can see then how what Peter is saying here in chapter 4, verse 7, also applies to many different scenarios that are colored as the end of all things. The end of all things is at hand. Well, what would be some other end of all things? Death. Every last love, and none of us are getting out of here alive, y'all. If you didn't know that, 
And when will it be? I don't know, and neither do you. The end of all things is at hand. Well, let's move to a different place. Let's go back to history for a minute. Imagine if you were standing in your boots there in the 1850s in that time frame leading up to the Civil War and marched into the Civil War as the national environment went from being these United States to the United States and all of the climactic social events that changed the face and the life of our country. In fact, many correspondents, both journalists and just private letters, said those very things. This is the end of America as we know it. The end of all things is at hand. And that social chaos that turned into the Civil War. Or there are other aspects where the way things used to be have drastically changed into something else. Now look, being 60 and being a boomer, but on the verge of being a Gen Xer, if that means anything to you, I have seen huge shifts. The moment it all began to hit for me was actually though when I went to go see my great-grandmother in a nursing home in Tahlequah, Oklahoma, right before I got stationed in Turkey. And so Anna was with me, and we were talking to her, and she was reminding me how she came to Oklahoma from Arkansas in a covered wagon. I'm talking to history. And then it dawned on me, goodness gracious, she, she didn't have indoor plumbing. She didn't have an indoor restroom. And she saw all that come. She didn't have electricity. And she saw all that come. She didn't have a radio. And then she saw all that come. She didn't have a TV. She saw all that come. She didn't have airplanes. And all of a sudden, up in the sky, right? She didn't have rocket ships. And guess what? We've been walking on the moon in her lifetime. And then she died. And that was a pretty slow but a very significant set of differences. So she could say, hey, the end of all the things that I know have come to an end. And it would be true. And then since then, Just think of the changes you and I have gone through. Technological changes alone. I mean, I carry a cell phone in my pocket. It could probably, in the 1960s, have run the whole U.S. economy and the government and everything else with all the technology that's in it. That's huge and ginormous. Big changes, but then socially, the end of all things is at hand. The end of all things is at hand. That's a cell phone on the floor there, sorry. The way you and I grew up and where it's at now, the end of all things has come. It's a totally different world. And so we we live there. Truly and always, though, the end of all things is always at hand. But then we always live and have always been taught from scriptures to know That today is the day just before Jesus returns. That's the way we live. The end of all things is at hand. Personal events, social transformations, national revolutions, and finally, the chronological conclusion to human history as we now know it, it all falls into those words, the end of all things is at hand. And as you hear those words, then think of anything else that brings us into a panicky, anxious, fretful feeling of the end. It's there. And so all things end. But now Peter explains the manners we're to exhibit in the face of such fretful transitions or how we are to live together as all things end. 
as all things end. Here's how we're to live. And that's the rest of verse 7 on into the very first part of verse 11. And you can see it all there. And notice where Peter is right back to. He's right back to where he was in chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. How we are together. Remember chapter 3, verses 8 through 12? Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. And his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. We're right back there in verses 7 through 11 here in chapter 4. It's the essential role of our relationships inside the household of Jesus. The way that we are to interact with one another. But now the temperature of urgency seems to be unramped up at the end of all things is at hand. There's the urgency is ramped up. And so here in the rest of verse 7 through the first part of verse 11, here's how we are to be and here's how we are to act as all things end. Now, I don't know if you're picking up what that implies because what's our normal reaction when we think everything is coming to an end? It's all self-preservation. Run, fight, 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 run, run. Take care of yourself. Go get your own. Right? That's what our normal knee-jerk reaction is. If it's not yours, it's definitely mine, okay? And notice what Peter is saying. As all things end, here's how we're to always be and always to act. And in a nutshell, the manners that Peter mandates here are th- at least three, and you have them as subpoints in your sermon notes. Be steady, be solicitous, be serving. Be steady, be solicitous, be serving. So look at that last part of verse 7. Therefore, be sophroneo and napho. Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Oh my goodness. I'm so excited. Those are words I've written a lot about. Peter uses two related words there that I have written exhaustively about in my book. Sophroneo and Napho, in that order. And what Peter is saying, notice what he's saying. Therefore, when all things explode, when the mushroom cloud lights up the sky, when the end has come, guess what? Therefore, be Sophroneo and Napho, be Sober-minded and steady. Be self-controlled or sober-minded as your translations have it there. Have your head on straight and don't allow yourself to stagger about like a drunk as all things end. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. To put it, the sentiment here in the negative For the good of your prayers, don't allow yourself to become panicky. For the good of your prayers, don't allow yourself to act like a flaming drunk with all of the incoherent and irrational fury and fretting. 
I love the way that Jeffrey Bromley puts it in his theological dictionary of the New Testament. I forgot to put all three of these quotes in your sermon notes, but I can get them to you. He's discussing the word sophroneo in verse 7. And here's what he says, quote, 1 Peter 4, 7 warns the community not to give way to the eschatological frenzy. Sorry, big word. It means end-of-the-world frenzy, eschatology. Warns the community not to give way to the end-of-the-world frenzy in face of the imminent end of all things. To do so is to fall victim to the world. To become panicky like the rest of our world, running around with your hair on fire, is to become worldly. I think he's got this right. So whatever end-of-the-world frenzy that surrounds you in our society, and there's a lot of it out there right now, don't fall into it. That's the way of worldliness. It makes you just like the world. It makes you like those in Zechariah chapter 7 that we read about who do not hear God. When you're in a frenzy, you don't hear God. You're busy taking care of yourself and your own business. It makes you then like them so that you do not hear God. And what did God say back in Zechariah 7? They refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. And so as I called... They would not hear, so they called and I would not hear. Therefore, be sophroneo and napho, be sober-minded and steady for the sake of your prayers. So, for the sake of your prayers, act like and be like a sober person, making good, sober decisions and keeping your relationships inside the church sound Solid and sober, just as God has commanded and directed us to do over and over and over again, just as our Lord Jesus Christ himself commanded. And remember, his command comes up in every New Testament letter. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you love one another. By this, the whole world will know that you are my disciples. And so then, verses 8 and 9, be solicitous. Be steady, be solicitous. Verses 8 and 9, I hope you're looking at it. It's basically verse 8, be loving. Verse 9, be hospitable. Be open-hearted and open-handed toward one another. Be open-hearted and open-handed toward one another. Don't be tight-fisted. Don't be ham-fisted. Don't be fear-fisted. Don't be anger-fisted, don't be vengeful-fisted strikers and punchers. Be open-hearted and open-handed. In fact, notice how important Peter makes it. Look at the very first two words of verse 8. What are the very first two words? Please say them. Well, I'll be. Above all. Above all. Specifically above the panic and the fretfulness and the frightfulness and the frenzy. I just made up those four F words together there. It just happened. And above all of that, 
Keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. As you love one another, it actually deals with some of those sins that people do. Remember, we've talked about this before. Sin happens in church. It covers them. Just think about the way it is in your marriage. Most times, your love for the spouse covers their sins. It doesn't mean that you ignore them. It doesn't mean those things. Sometimes you actually have to address those things. It means you don't hold them as a grudge. You don't use them as a baseball bat to smash the smithereens out of the other, right? Love covers a multitude of sins. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Above the potential panic and frenzy that you may feel swelling up inside of you about your world, about your denomination, about your family, about your community, your nation. Above all of that, be loving one another. And be hospitable. I love the way Peter puts it. Be hospitable without grudging. He knew some of us. Without being grumpy. Right? It's, I know it's inconvenient sometimes when you show hospitality. I mean, I've got to actually clean some things up. I mean, I get it. But I find that funny and love it. The fact that Peter puts a very human statement in there. Show hospitality without grumbling. And so be open-hearted and open-handed. Colin Hansen and Jonathan Lehman just put out a new book. Somebody gave me a free copy Um, It's called Rediscover Church. And at this point, I don't know if I like all of it, but I love this introduction. Here's what they said in the introduction. Quote, God does not invite us to church because it's a comfortable place to find a bit of spiritual encouragement. No, he invites us into a family of misfits and outcasts. He welcomes us into a home That's rarely what we want, yet just what we need. God brings us into his church, his family, his home, a company of misfits and outcasts. And as soon as you say, yeah, you're talking about Glenn Tappert or whoever, right? Remember, there are how many fingers pointing right back at the rest of y'all, misfits and outcasts? There's three. Oh, that's all of us. Misfits and outcasts. It may not be the church that we want, but it's the church that we need. It's not the family we want, but it's the family that we need. I love that statement. And so be solicitous. And to take this a step further, Peter continues by directing us in verse 10 and the first part of verse 11, be serving. Be serving. Be engaged with each other with whatever gifts you have. Here's the principle, it's in verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. There's the principle. It's the principle actually explained in our foundational document. Well, not a foundational, it's a... We call them a standards, for those of you who are visiting. The Westminster Confession of Faith is our big statement of faith that was written in the 1640s. And you can see them actually bringing out this very concept in chapter 26, paragraph 1. Here's what they say. All saints that are united to Jesus Christ, their head, by His Spirit and by faith, have fellowship with Him in His graces, 
sufferings, death, resurrection, and glory, and being united to one another in love. Being united to one another in love, they have communion in each other's gifts and graces and are obliged to the performance of such duties, public and private, as do conduce to their mutual good and so forth. It's an essential aspect of how we will make it through together whatever end of the world storm is blowing up in our day, serving one another. We serve. And we serve as recipients of God's grace, dispensing, if you will, God's grace to one another by means of these graces, as Peter puts it, God's varied graces. And then Peter presents us with two examples. These are just examples. He means more. If you want to know more, go back and look at the passage we read before the confession of sin from Romans 12. In both of what we're to do, we're to be servants of God. So the two examples, preaching and teaching, and deaconing. That's the Greek word, deaconing, serving. There's the two examples of how we share each other's gifts. Those of us who speak God's oracles do so with reverence and authenticity when preaching and teaching. And when all of us are deaconing, that's the Greek word, deaconing, To one another, we do so by the very strength of God. We do so by the very resilience of God. And so be serving. So here's what Peter says. As all things end, be steady, be solicitous, be serving. That's how we live. Whether we feel like it's the end of the world moment or not. It's part of our practice. Here's how I put it in my book, Our Heads on Straight, as I was talking about 1 Peter 4, 7-11, quote, No matter the shortness of our moment in history, whether it's the looming destruction of Jerusalem, the end of history as we know it, or the final coming of Jesus, we are to have our heads on straight, serving one another soundly and sympathetically, end of quotation. And the reason is because at the end of verse 11, there is an end for all things. An end for all things. The end for all things has everything to do with what we pray in the Lord's Prayer. Hallowed be thy name. And so Peter directs us. It's that part of the verse after the hyphen. Do you see the hyphen in verse 11? Look at the hyphen and it's that part of the verse after the hyphen. In order that... In everything. In order that in everything? In order that even in the end of the world frenetic panic or the less high pressure times, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We are always, always to be these ways. Because we've always known that the end of all things is just around the corner. And we also know that the Lord Jesus Christ, we heard it back in chapter 3, verse 18 and following, that the Lord Jesus Christ has graciously made us who, surprise, surprise, are on the right side of history. He did so by graciously putting us on the good side of God. That's justification. Despite what we deserve. 
in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. And so notice that Peter, in the middle of all of this end-of-the-world stuff, that unsettles others and strips their screws, brings us where we will always be. Brings us where we will always find our dignity and our unending joy. To him be the glory, dominion, forever and ever. Amen. Brings us to worship. And so, dear friends, the end of all things is at hand. But as all things end, be steady, be solicitous, be serving. Knowing that there is an end, a goal for all things. Memories, manners, and mandates for God's minority people. Let us pray. Lord our God, you have told us that whatever we do, if we do not do it in love, it is meaningless. And so we pray that you would send your spirit upon us and pour into our hearts the bond, the, the, the greatest gift of love that would be the bond between us, drawing us close to you together. Lord, honestly, it feels like in our time, it always, it's been feeling like this for quite a while. It feels like the end has come, okay? May it come. But help us, no matter what happens, to be, because of Jesus, to be steady, solicitous, and serving. And if it's you coming back sometime soon, I pray you will find us being steady, solicitous, and serving. To you belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.